Welcome to Irish Passport. Uh, let's do it. Welcome to the Irish Passport. I'm Tim McInerney. I'm Naomi O'Leary. We're friends. Okay, well to Naomi. Anwar Fad Tim. This is your passport to Irish culture, history and politics. Uh-huh. I'm recording. One, One two, two, three. three. Okay. Breaking news, breaking news, everyone. The impossible seems to have occurred. The UK and the European <laughs> Union have come to a deal to resolve their long-running dispute over Northern Ireland's post-Brexit trade arrangements. And we go live to our resident EU expert, Ms Naomi O'Leary, Esquire. Hi, Tim. Yes, breaking Brexit news. Um, hi, listeners. Um Welcome to the Irish Passport Podcast, everybody. And it's like, I feel like we're going back to our roots with this one because it's something yeah. that kind of has dominated our podcast since the very earliest days. Um, but mm. today looks potentially to be a, quite a historical day in the very long running saga of Brexit and something that will actually conclude this whole saga at last, uh, which is that um, a political agreement has been announced on the Northern Ireland Protocol. Uh, this agreement is being called the Windsor Framework. I'm like mm-hmm. imagining how they like workshopped that, you know, like how did they come yeah. up with framework? I was wondering. But anyway, um, so this the, the protocol, which is the prior agreement, was a source of long running tension between the UK government and the EU and Stormont um, since about since it came into effect really in 2021. Um, and now the question really is whether this political agreement is going to stand, whether it's enough to convince the hardliners in the Conservative Party, enough to convince the DUP, the Democratic Unionist Party to set aside their qualms and, and stop this dispute, essentially. And everything right now is to play for. So, so Naomi, you are calling us from location. Where are you right now? <laughs> I'm in the basement of the Berlaymon, which is the European Commission's headquarters in the heart of Brussels on the Schumann ra- roundabout. So, yeah, I'm um, where all the EU officials like live and work, um, the ones mm. that have worked up this deal and where the negotiations have been taking place most of the time. OK, so you, you pretty much have a, a front row seat, <laughs> right? So and we're getting this fresh off, it was fresh off the press, um, Fairly, mm-hmm. almost literally there, um, uh, mm-hmm. audio, the audio version of that. In this episode, we're just trying to like process what has just happened to kind of delve into what this might mean. I mean, there's a still, like you say, there's still a lot to play for, but just first mm-hmm. impressions to see what any of this means. And maybe let's take a little listen to Rishi Sunak and Ursula von der Leyen talking today about announcing their new deal. I'm pleased to report that we have now made a decisive breakthrough. Together, we have changed the original protocol and are today announcing the new Windsor framework. Today's agreement delivers smooth flowing trade within the whole United Kingdom, protects Northern Ireland's place in our union and safeguards sovereignty for the people of Northern Ireland. The new Windsor framework respects and protects our respective markets and our respective legitimate interests. And most importantly, it protects the very hard-earned peace gains of the Belfast Good Friday Agreement for the people of Northern Ireland and across the island of Ireland. 
So that was the scene at the press conference held in Windsor, um, where the head of the European Commission, Ursula von der Leyen, and the British Prime Minister, Rishi Sunak, announced they'd reached this political deal in principle. Um, and fascinatingly, as that was happening, simultaneously to those them saying those words uh, live on television, the EU member states, the 27, were actually being told about what was in this deal for the very first time. They didn't know until that moment because mm. the secrecy over this whole deal has been so extreme to prevent leaks um, getting out and like scuppering the whole process if, they, if it caused like a, a Conservative Party or DUP rebellion um, that they, they didn't know what was in it until literally that moment where an Ursula wow. von der Leyen started speaking and Rishi Sunak started speaking and the diplomats re representing the EU member states gathered right here in Brussels and got like the lowdown from Mara Shevkovich, the vice president of the European Commission, and he told them what was in this deal. Um, we're recording now on the evening of the 27th of February. Mm -hmm. We're going to try and get this episode out as soon as we possibly can. Um, mm -hmm. But at this moment, we are just really after that announcement, more or less. Uh, we're, we're certainly just after um, Rishi Sunak's announcement in the House of Commons in the UK. Yeah. And the social media and the media is absolutely buzzing uh, with with this story. Like, this is a really, really, really big deal. So for those of you maybe who are coming at this from a little bit further away, you may have a fair idea if you listen to this podcast uh, what we're talking about here, but maybe you don't. Maybe you're new to the podcast. So we should set down exactly what the Northern Ireland Protocol is. I'm going to try and make three sentences, right? <laughs> Okay, not three sentences, but a few statements. The UK left the EU. Uh, nobody really thought about Northern Ireland during that time. The border between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland was left as this big problem for years. Yeah, so like the, the whole idea of Brexit is that Britain would be free to set its own rules, right? And then mm. you have this problem because the idea of a single market, which is what the EU is, is that everybody follows the same rules so that there are no borders. So the question was, there had to be a border somewhere if the Britain was going to have different rules. And the question was where to put it. Erecting a so-called hard border in Ireland was practically impossible because the Good Friday peace deal, which ended the conflict in Northern Ireland in 1998, that completely was dependent on the border between Northern Ireland and the Republic remaining open. But perhaps more to the point, policing goods and people crossing the border is pretty much logistically impossible. The border goes through people's homes, it zigzags back and forth between, you know, motorways, loop-de-loops around in fields, and trying to maintain a customs border there would be uh, completely impracticable. In order not to have it on the island of Ireland, it ended up going down the Irish Sea. And that was, that was this deal known as the Protocol. It was like, it was a separate text that was negotiated alongside um, as part of Britain's withdrawal agreement from the EU. Um, and it was it was a necessary thing in order for the EU and the UK to sign a new trade agreement. Um, but yeah, the in effect, it means that Northern Ireland more or less stayed in line with the rules of the EU, uh, for goods anyway, um, so that there weren't any need for checks along the border of the island of Ireland. And this is sort of obnoxious um, to unionists because they feel that they're differentiated from um, Britain and there was also like uh, logistical issues like um, people were used to doing their online shopping and getting stuff seamlessly as though they were just in Manchester rather than let's say Belfast or whatever um, and there were issues there there were some products which weren't being stocked anymore and it, it was really it was it was upsetting uh, especially to unionists um, but it's also worth saying that it's also like an opportunity because being in line with the EU and its rules also 
gives access to businesses in Northern Ireland to a market of like 450 million people, which is not to sniff at. <laughs> Either, whatever the case, some people mm. who are, have never been happy about this, in fact, who have been furious about this, unsurprisingly, have been the DUP. Uh, so the DUP, of course, originally supported Brexit um, when the Brexit vote back in 2016 was happening because they thought it would strengthen their place in the union, <laughs> rather misguidedly, as it turns out. Um, but now they kind of ended up, in their minds, more cut off than the rest of the UK than ever before mm-hmm. by what they see as a, what they saw as a trade border in the Irish Sea. So in protest against the protocol, the DUP has more or less since refused to return to Stormont. And that has left Northern Ireland once again without a government, and it's ramped up, it is ramping up still, pressure on everyone else involved to get this whole thing sorted out definitively. It's also worth saying that, like, um, it's also this political issue in the UK. Like, there's this Mm. hardline um, faction of the Conservative Party, which has held all these prime ministers to the wall, Boris Johnson and subsequently Liz Truss, we've gone through a succession of them. They've often been disfenestrated by these hardliners or the hardliners have had a role in getting rid of them. Um, Mm. And they've had this, they don't like the protocol either, um, particularly because they have this like theoretical objection to the role of the European Court of Justice, which is kind of technical. Essentially, like the, the, the thing about the European Court of Justice is it is the fulcrum of the EU's legal order. Like it is what holds the union together it's just having one authority that interprets law in a standard way throughout all of the 27 member states so without it you you don't have a single market um and mm. if it needs to apply in northern ireland if northern ireland are following eu laws because it's the sole arbiter of eu laws but having a like this overseas court having a say over the rules that northern ireland are following is is kind of obnoxious to these like sovereignty purists um, mm. So that's been this long-running issue as well. Okay, right. And so you have that. So you have the DUP, you have these <laughs> sovereignty purists, as you call them, these mm-hmm. kind of hardline Brexiters uh, in Westminster. Mm-hmm. But then on top of those problems, all these people objecting to the protocol just existing in the first place, there were just loads of complications when it came to actually implementing the protocol, right? It, it's really difficult to unpick what it was caused mm. by covid what was caused by Brexit itself rather than the protocol, Um, what was caused by the UK government like not wanting it to work and not putting in place the things they had had agreed to put in place and stuff. Um, Mm. And then you have consumers in Northern Ireland like you would have people worried about not being able to get products that they wanted and things like um, garden centres. And then it, the interpretation of those complaints would be highly politically weighted. Like if you were objected to the protocol um, to begin with, you'd be like, ha you see what problems it's causing, you know. <laughs> and then, mm. um, but then if you kind of thought the protocol was a good thing, you might say there's disruption everywhere, you know. Um, so it's, it's kind of yeah. hard to unpack, but at least it caused some problems anyway, yes. Yeah, and there's, okay. there's, there's other there's other factor as well, which is that um, while the whole time while Boris Johnson was prime minister in the United Kingdom in particular, he kind of seemed to use tensions with the EU for his own political purposes because it was kind mm. of beneficial for him to be seen domestically as like standing up to Brussels. Yeah, okay, right. And this is something I was really thinking about today, actually kind of watching all of this play out uh, under the premiership of Rishi Sunak. It seemed actually so unusual to see a 
British government intervention in Northern Ireland that wasn't a complete fiasco. And I, was, I was actually thinking, is this kind of mature and well-crafted politics or is it just not a fiasco? I can't really tell either because of course what happened like, you know, with Boris Johnson was so extraordinary, right? So as listeners might remember from, it seems like 25 years ago, but it wasn't that long ago, what, a year ago? Um, he had pushed this specific protocol deal. This, you know, this was his baby. This was his oven-ready deal. Most of his senior officials had negotiated it. He had declared it a great success. He had campaigned in an election on the basis that it was a great success. And he won an, a, a huge majority on the back of that. And also pretty much forced the UK Parliament to approve it in really, really short time without mm -hmm. the usual kind of um, period of scrutiny. And despite all of that, within a few months of this protocol coming into force, Boris Johnson and his government had rejected the deal that they had signed and told the EU that they wanted to renegotiate it already, right? Mm. Right, exactly. And like the sympathetic view is that, um, oh, it just, it, it was a good idea in theory, but it didn't work in practice or something like that. Or uh, some conservatives say, oh, it was only ever supposed to be temporary and stuff like that. But that's really not true. That's not what they were saying at the time. Um, anyway, mm. at first, like the EU was just sort of disbelieving. Like there'd been years of these, these negotiations, really torturous negotiations to deal with uh, Brexit and come up with this arrangement. This was something that had been specifically asked for by Boris Johnson. They really wanted to put it all behind them and just like get on with with making work these new arrangements that they had just painstakingly designed. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, it, the UK wasn't, the UK government wasn't happy with it anymore. Um, it became more and more of an issue for unionists, particularly as like UK conservatives made it an issue and started to say that it was a threat to the union and stuff like that. Um, things got more and more heated, more and more contentious. Um, the UK didn't implement it. And then the EU took the first steps towards taking legal action against the British government for failing to implement it. Um, because after all, an, an agreement signed like this um, has the status of international law. That's what it is. Mm -hmm. And in turn, the Johnson government ramped up uh, pro ramped up tensions as well. Um, they introduced a bill in Parliament, for example, called the Northern Ireland Protocol Bill. Yes, the Northern Ireland Protocol Bill, which pretty much says that if they don't want to do it anymore, if they don't want the, if they don't want to follow the rules of the deal anymore, they don't have to. <laughs> yeah, is that it? Yeah, m more or less. Like, um, yeah, it was like the latest iteration of basically attempts to set down in domestic law that they could override international law. So they'd say, mm -hmm. actually, we don't have to do this anymore and we're going to pass a bill that says we don't have to do it. Um, and yet the first time they did it, a British minister actually openly said, we want to break international law, but in a limited and specific way, which has become oh, like yes. this iconic quote. Um, I would say to my um, honourable friend that yes, this does break international law in a very specific and limited way. We are taking the power to disapply the EU law concept of direct effect required by Article 4 in a certain very tightly defined circumstance. But anyway, the, the introduction of this bill um, saying that they were going to unilaterally break um, this international law was kind of like the high point of tensions. It looked at this point that the UK and the EU were heading into a full-blown legal dispute over this, which ultimately could end up with big fines being levied on the mm. UK and even a trade war between the two sides. So like pretty serious stuff. Right, yes, this was really serious. So a trade war really was until this week, a few days ago, a few hours ago, perhaps, very much on the cards as this thing that seemed like kind of imminent. But after the events of today, this seems a lot 
lot more distance. So what changed? How did the relationship turn around here between uh, these two parties and kind of soften? Well, everything changed more or less exactly one year ago when Russia invaded Ukraine. Um, Because this really put everything into perspective. And it became very, very important that the Western European countries not be fighting amongst themselves and instead form a united front in supporting Ukraine and putting pressure on Russia to stop the invasion. And you you might have noticed that that was mentioned actually a few times in the press conference by von der Leyen and Sunak. They were talking about working together on sanctions and measures like that. And it really... um, it just made it very transparent that the two sides actually have a lot in common and that it was there was this big geopolitical onus for them to not be rowing in public. And there's also the, the Washington factor. You know, over in the United States, President Joe Biden um, has been trying to corral this, like, international front uh, against Russia and has really turned up the pressure for the UK and the EU to put this petty dispute behind them for the sake of like broader Western unity. During this last year as well, of course, we can't forget that there was this crazy game of musical chairs uh, Mm. with the position of UK prime minister. So famously, Mm. Boris Johnson got booted out earlier this year uh, amid plenty of scandal. And then, you know, all kinds of (laughs) people started taking the position of PM in the UK. Yeah, there, there's been a succession of them. But it is really important that Boris Johnson isn't prime minister anymore. Um, mm. He was ousted by his own party after an accumulation of various scandals, including revelations that his headquarters were throwing parties during the worst of COVID-19 and the pandemic restrictions. Um, mm. But yeah, he he was replaced by Liz Truss. But... Famously, yes. It only lasted 44 days, 44 very chaotic days um, mm. before... She was booted out when Mm -hmm. uh, the international markets completely panicked over her economic policies. And then she was replaced with Rishi Sunak, who has put through this deal today. Uh, So Mm. people have generally seen Sunak's approach to the whole protocol situation as very different from his predecessors. So what is he doing differently? Why is that? Well, you know, it's interesting. Truss said, I want to put things on a positive footing and reset relations with the EU. But she she didn't really have time to do it. And also, (laughs) she didn't have as much credibility. Um, Sunak did support Brexit, but he is seen as more of a pragmatist, particularly on economic matters. And very quickly after he took office in October, there was a noticeable change in the talks between the UK and the EU about this protocol issue. Um, The Mm. two sides had been in talks about it for like two years but the whole thing had been very much stalled for at least a year with no progress being made but then there came a kind of a political and economic opening there's a new prime minister there was a lot of evidence as well that the british economy was suffering a lot post-brexit so like yeah the evidence of the effects of brexit i suppose is Mm -hmm. just really beginning to mount up now now that the pandemic you know has been kind of like fallen into the background and it can't all be blamed on that anymore recently enough listeners may have seen that the uk has run out of some certain fruits and vegetables like there's no tomatoes i think in the uk at the moment Mm. or no no lettuces i think in britain Um, but interestingly yeah not in northern ireland which tells you a lot right that's it that's the thing yes exactly it's only it's only on the island of britain like because Northern Ireland had access to these things because of the protocol. And that's not the first time that this has happened since Brexit, mm-hmm. right? So it's kind of, you know, the, you know, it happens once, it happens twice, they can find excuses. And this time yeah. they've been talking about like weather in Spain and stuff. But it seems like, oh, that it's funny. It always only happens to the country that <laughs> recently left the EU. So yeah, it's, yeah. it's getting conspicuous for them. And the British government has been saying that there's a range of factors like bad weather and stuff and 
But it is obvious that the thing that has made the difference is Brexit because all of the mm. countries around the island of Britain don't have shortages like this. Um, and in this environment of like poor economic news, the performance of Britain's economy like sticks out in Europe for how much it's struggling. Um, mm. That perspective about the importance of good relations with allies given the war in Ukraine. And there's also signs in polls that the British government has soured, uh, the British public has soured a bit on Brexit in general. So basically um, with an election coming in 2024 and polls really bad for the Conservative Party, there's essentially this political space for Rishi Sunak to try and um, do something positive, to try and do something that would be good for the economy and turn around the perception of the Conservative Party that they only like do destructive things economically. Right. Right. Okay. So all of that then, all of that mm -hmm. funnels, leads us right up until today. Now, people have mm -hmm. been talking about the announcement of this deal for about a week, I suppose, before this. Um, mm -hmm. And it's been postponed a few times and there's been all kinds of kind of um, uh, like interventions from the sidelines. I think Boris Johnson made some kind of veiled threat to Rishi Sunak. He said something like, don't you dare take away the protocol bill. And um, I think um, uh, Suella Braverman threatened to resign. And like all the same old kind of high school drama, right? That, that mm -hmm. this lot go on with all the time. Uh, but then when it came to a head today, there was this, you know, pretty stately affair that was set up. They gave the whole thing this name, the Windsor framework. You had Ursula yeah. von der Leyen coming and making, a, you know, these very rehearsed speeches with Rishi Sunak, who unfortunately he still kind of speaks a little bit like... It reminds you of leaving certain debates. He's not, he's, not, he's not the most amazing speaker. But then, you know, compared to Boris Johnson and Liz Truss, like, it doesn't take much to really outshine them. And, um, uh, like, the whole thing just looked very choreographed and very sleek, I thought, actually, today. And the reaction, uh, you know, I think they just seem to have, anyway, we're in the early hours of this, they seem to have mm. struck it, you know, quite well. The reaction has been very, very positive, kind of off the bat, straight away. So, Naomi, can you break down the content of what has just happened what has been yeah. announced today what they've announced is a political agreement in principle okay um mm. it's very very comprehensive if this goes ahead so if there's the if they have the backing if von der Leyen has the backing of the eu member states and if sunak has the backing of his government and so on and his party then there will be like legal texts to follow that will sort of make all of this real so there's a certain process between the announcement of this agreement in principle and it actually becoming real. But it's extremely comprehensive. So it's it's really wide ranging. Like I said, I've just spent the last few hours trying to read it. Trying to There's more than one document. There's like many, many versions and bits and pieces. It's like part of it's a political declaration. There's parts of it which are sort of updates to the prior agreement made by a particular committee. Um, there's, you know, there's all kinds of things in here. Um, but to so to sum up the main points of what's being changed, um, they would set up something called red and green channels that would govern the arrival of goods from Britain into Northern Ireland. Going through the green channel would be any stuff intended for sale in Northern Ireland. So the stuff that would go onto supermarket shelves in Northern Ireland. Mm. And the idea of a green lane is that they have to do much less paperwork and there's fewer checks. Um, so the EU were saying it would come down to about 5% of the checks that are currently in place. Um, so it would be less onerous. 
And Rishi Sunak promised that you would have all the products that are on the shelves in Britain would be available in Northern Ireland because of this. Northern Irish consumers can get anything that they would be able to get were they living in Britain. Um, mm. And part of what facilitates that is basically anything you buy from a shop in Northern Ireland is going to have a sticker on it that says for sale in Northern Ireland only um, mm. and not for sale in the EU. And backing this up, allowing for this um, this stuff to come in like like this, which isn't uh, like in line with single market rules potentially, there's data sharing. So all of these declarations about what goods are crossing the border from Northern Ar- from Britain into Northern Ireland, the EU would have like live real time access to that data and be able to see, OK, this stuff is crossing, that stuff is crossing. We can see this stuff. And the idea is that then they'd be able to keep an eye on things and make sure the risk wasn't too great. So there's compromises definitely on both sides there. Uh one of the, the second big thing uh, that's coming up here and that a lot of people are wagging about right now is what's called the Stormont Break. Can you explain that to us? Yeah, one of the concerns about the protocol that was raised is that you have Northern Ireland governed by these rules, EU regulations, which will um, get updated over time. But Northern Ireland doesn't have any political representation in the writing of that rules anymore because it's left it's left the EU as part of the UK. They don't have any MEPs negotiating it. They don't have like a voice or a say in these rules, but they're going to have to follow them. And so there's this mm. there's this problem about like democratic representation. Um, and there were discussions about how to solve this exactly. And this thing called the Stormont Break is um, a way to solve that. It is designed to follow the format of something called a petition of concern. Um, I think we probably mentioned petitions of concern on the podcast before. It happens. It's it's something that was designed as part of the Good Friday Agreement for the Stormont Assembly. Um, Stormont Assembly is built around power sharing between unionist and nationalist parties. And a petition of concern means that if a group of 30 MLAs, so representatives in the assembly, if a group of 30 of them come together and declare uh, we're uncomfortable with something, um, they can force a cross-community vote. So they can force a cross-community vote on something. That means it has to have the support of uh, parties on both sides in order to pass. The DUP is famous for doing this over stuff like gay marriage, for example. So they've they've objected to all kinds of things under the petition of concern. Um, and sometimes things that you might argue uh, it's, it's inappropriate for them to use it for. Um, but anyway... Um, the storm and break is basically that. So if there is going to be a new EU law or an update to EU legislation that's coming and therefore will be in place in Northern Ireland, if 30 MLAs can get together and say we do not like this and we think that it's going to have some terrible impact on communities in Northern Ireland and people's everyday lives, they can come together and they can demand a cross-community vote and then that basically means the UK government can decide that it won't this for for a period of time this new law won't be in place in Northern Ireland and then basically they've got to sort it out with the EU it goes to arbitration they've got to talk about it and and like fix it the EU is can also be like uh we don't think you we don't we don't think you've used this property we, we think you're calling this storm and break for frivolous region reasons or like local domestic reasons where's the proof that this is going to affect people's lives or whatever so they can they can object to it um but yeah it's a way for pausing the application of certain EU legislation in Northern Ireland and the idea they've come up with the reason they came up with it is to solve this problem of democratic deficit. 
Okay, all right. So yeah, if anything has been been kind of earmarked as the thing that might cause trouble in the future, definitely so far <laughs> it seems like this one is standing out a little bit. Um, this issue of um, you know trivial trivial concerns won't be taken into account. I mean, of course, it brings up the whole idea of what is trivial when concerns can be mm-hmm. so niche sometimes when it comes to the context of mm-hmm. Northern Ireland and what it, when does it get trivial, right? Like, or when does it mm-hmm. get a, you know a matter of serious concern for the community? <laughs> like, the rhetoric yeah. can be so dialed up on very very small things um, that yeah mm-hmm. the, the line that you cross there is um, difficult to know. Um, so nobody knows quite for sure how this is going to work but it seems like I mean it seems like both sides here have a fair idea that they can make it work somehow um well yeah um I mean there there's so much in here like I could just go on and on there's stuff about medicines there's stuff about changes to VAT there's stuff about state aid rules there's stuff about like pet microchipping uh the European Court of Justice like oh you know it just it just goes on and on I'm not sure if it's there's value in us going through all of it. Um, suffice to say that um, the UK government can um, present this as the EU having caved a lot uh, right. because the amount by which that they've agreed that potentially checks can reduce and all sorts of products can come in that they were really worried about, like seed potatoes and plants that they were afraid would bring agricultural diseases into the single market, all this kind of stuff. There's There's been a, like a lot of... Um, They've given a lot on things like that. Um, and and th- so the UK government can really sell that. And they are. I was just reading through their document um, and the, they have this really interesting phrase in it, which they, they this is the, the, the UK's sort of announcement of the deal, which is in this big sort of PDF. And it mm. says, inherent in this new way forward is the prospect of significant divergence between the two distinct economies on the island of Ireland. And it says that this, this poo-poo's the whole idea of an all-island economy, and we're not going to talk about that anymore, and like all this kind of stuff. Um, so, mm. like, they can very much sell this as um, like a unionist deal, I suppose, yeah. Um, yeah. To, to quite a large extent. Now, the reaction in the EU is like, okay, well, at the end of the day, we we have all these protections for the single market in there. There are still checks. There's still data, um, there's data sharing, so we see everything that's going in. Um, they still are in line with EU single market rules in Northern Ireland. The ECJ, the European Court of Justice, is still the like final authority that arbitra- arbitrates um, if there's an issue. So the fundamentals, like the core of the agreement is still there, even if there's these like differences in, in how it's being applied. Um, so, yes, I guess... I bet I think like both sides can can potentially sell it, um, but my react the reaction right now is that EU diplomats and the member states, like I said, they haven't seen any of this before, and they've been do- mm. doing exactly what we're doing right now and exactly what I've been doing for the last few hours is just reading it and trying to get a handle on this detail of mm. all of these huge changes um, and just just like thousands of words to read, so they're doing that. Um, and yeah, okay. all of this still needs to be formally agreed. So the UK Parliament is going to have a vote on it. Rishi Sunak said that. For the EU side, it depends what aspect of the agreement. Some of it is just like a political like declaration, like we declare this, and that doesn't need any sort of ratification. But 
other bits need to be ratified by the agreement of the 27 member states and they just sort of go, yes, we all agree, tick. And then there's more of it again, which is like changes to EU legislation. And any changes to EU legislation, that has to go through the European Parliament. So it has to go through a whole ratification process. It would probably take months. It has to be approved by the member states and the European Parliament. It wouldn't be expected to like cause any major political upsets or something like that. But there's there's a sort of, there's a ways to go, basically. Yeah, it's interesting because in terms of perception or the desired mm-hmm. perception of how this has gone, like who has won, there's very different mm-hmm. kind of levels of investment on, on each side here. So yes, uh, it feels indeed. to me that like the EU has recognised for a long time that it's really important for the Brits to feel like they've won here. You know, it's important mm-hmm. for their voter base. It's important to present to present to the public that plucky Britain has, you know, overcome the odds and that, you know, that that's a narrative that kind of has to happen. And if it doesn't happen, everyone kind of goes off and sulks and causes problems. And the EU is happy to kind of let them have that because like, why not? You know, if that's what you need in order to make this work, uh, why not? While on the other side, on the EU side, like most of the member states have actually forgotten about this. Um, And if they have remembered about it, they have no real interest in it and they think it's already over and like, what, are we still doing this? You know, like it's a very different level of investment and, you know, they don't need to win because they've forgotten it even existed in the first place, right? Um, So that's an interesting... It it depends, yeah. But no, Mm. you're totally right in identifying that. There's an imbalance of how much people care. Um, For Mm. many EU member states, like this is not a very super sensitive or relevant thing like they 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 are so past it there's many other things that they would rather be talking about the further away you you go from geographically the less people are concerned like particularly out east people are just focused on ukraine so um the, the member states that are concerned about this are primarily ireland and after ireland all of the other member states that are close geographically so like france belgium netherlands they're the kind of, and Denmark, they're the kind of ones that are like most concerned and it just reduces the further you get away from that. Um, so yeah, they are like, they, they, France is going to continue to be really concerned about the protection of the single market for sure, because they are like that and they don't want the Brits to be like getting away with stuff, you know, so they're going to be right. still concerned. And I, one, I, when I saw some of the aspects of this deal, I was like, this gives leeway for a bit of piss taking that's that's what i was thinking or smuggling or whatever so you know we'll have to see but it basically sets down that there's going to be ongoing engagement between the two sides about this and about laws they they both say that either side if they're going to be changing their legislation they're going to consult with the other side and stuff and just to keep it on the constructive like boring civil servant level rather than and rather than everything escalating to these huge fights at a political level where they're like threatening trade wars and stuff like that it's just like okay if there's problems we talk about them we figure it out that's a kind of a major change the second thing um that uh, that really strikes me about the presentation mm-hmm. of all this um the setting up of, of all this uh, is what you mentioned there uh, just a minute ago as this kind of win for unionism, as this unionist mm-hmm. thing. And this has been, this rhetoric has been kind of ramping up uh, for the past week. Uh, so a few days ago, we discovered that the monarch was going to be involved, that the king was mm. going to be somehow involved, uh, which, you know, um, everyone kind of saw as this very cynical ploy to make this into something that 
the DUP couldn't criticize. I just thought this was so interesting because if the king mm. says it's good, then the DUP can't. Um, so Sky News broke that a few days ago that the king was going mm-hmm. to be involved. And um, <laughs> Sammy Wilson from the DUP came on Sky News. I saw a clip and I presumed he was going to say, wow, you're so cynical, guys. You think just because the king says something that we're going to do it? But <laughs> like he did the exact opposite. He said, you can't do this. The king is our thing. <laughs> <laughs> you can't bring him into it because, okay, he didn't say this in so many words, but he almost did. He was on the brink of saying, you know, you, it's unfair. It's kind of like it's cheating to get the king involved because you know that we have to follow the king. <laughs> so that was, um, I was, I actually found that so interesting because it was like, oh, wow, somebody, somebody behind the scenes here really does kind of, ha- you know, know that this is going to have an effect. So not only did yes. they get the king involved, they changed the name from Protocol, which has become in Stormont kind of, uh, you know, kind of linked with nationalism, right? The Protocol, mm-hmm. um, you know, this kind of nationalist plot it's, it's, it's been often kind of framed as. Changing mm-hmm. the name to the Windsor Framework and then having mm-hmm. it in Windsor and having Ur- Ursula von der Leyen and Rishi Sunak go and have tea with the king immediately after afterwards. In Windsor it's kind Castle. of a stroke of genius, yeah. right? You know, when they're the whole moment right now, and we will wait to see how this turns out, but the whole moment right now is loaded with like a mm-hmm. million eyes that have turned around, swiveled around in the room and are looking at the DUB. And, Mm. you know, so many actors in this whole um, situation, I feel immediately kind of profusely protesting a little bit too much, said how Mm. great it is that we got a deal. And you could almost feel that they were talking to the DUP. They were saying, isn't this great DUP? Wouldn't it be an absolute disgrace and shame if somebody poo-pooed this when we've all worked so hard to make it happen and made it so lovely for you and for unionism? So, yeah, maybe can you talk about the DUP and... And, um, uh, like where it stands now. Well, definitely, like the stage management of the announcement of this deal has been absolutely central. Mm. Like um, the that's why there's been all this secrecy from the EU side, and it's been so different from all of the deals of the past. Because you'll remember, many times in the past, stuff got leaked particularly to RTE, and then all the details would be on RTE, and the Democratic Unionist Party got really upset that it got particularly that it was on the Irish national broadcaster before they'd been told about it. Like it really offended them. So Mm. everything was very different this time. There was no leaking. Um, Everything, the the reason the ambassadors weren't told about it until today was so that they couldn't tell journalists and it wouldn't filter down to us. So it was was actually really hard to report about. Like there was just this information vacuum and it's all to give Rishi Sunak the political space to manage this, to manage how it would be announced. And it's amazing that they even got um, this, this King Charles connection. Like, mm. I think they're playing it down. I think they're saying it wasn't an official visit and stuff like this, but it is overt and putting it in the name and, and calling it Windsor, Windsor, whatever it is. Like it is like, it, like undeniably they're using that as a factor. Um, mm. So in terms of the Democratic Unionist Party, the main question is whether the DUP are going to go back into Stormont and whether they'll agree to do that by the 25th anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement, which falls in April. That's the, that's what everybody's hoping. Um, yeah. They're hoping that they can get them to go back in, restore power sharing by that anniversary, and then everyone can celebrate and be like, good guys, it's working, the peace is working, or Northern Ireland has a good future. Um and yeah, that, that that's where that's where everyone is is looking to them. So um, 
Yeah, we'll have to see. So the the DUP before this had set down mm-hmm. what they called seven tests, and they wouldn't agree to any of this unless it passed their seven tests. And the seven mm-hmm. tests are basically all the same thing. I won't go through them. They're basically all mm-hmm. the same thing. No checks on goods between GB and I. Um, yeah. No no sense of any difference whatsoever. Um, a, a lot of them seem to have been addressed, but a lot of them are very, very vague. And mm-hmm. it's, you know, if they decide that they haven't been, um, they haven't been addressed, then they can, you know, like they definitely can do this. I mean, I saw Ian Paisley Jr. Uh, responding already this evening, saying that he w- mm-hmm. w- there were still some concerns about all mm-hmm. this. But, I mean, seven tests or no, and seven tests really seem a little bit rich now at this stage when, you know, they're ha- they're half responsible for all this themselves. Like, half this mess is their own fault. And now you have to pass their, their you know, their, their riddles three before anyone can move on. <laughs> <laughs> but um, uh, aside from all that, it does feel, surely, that, like, the EU and the UK aren't going to go back to the drawing board again for the DUP on this. Like, they can, they can shout about their seven tests and they can leave and never come back to Stormont again if they want. But, like... They're not going to change this again, surely, right? Like, we'll see. I mean, I think I think this is probably the best that the UK is going to get, um, for sure. So um, mm. I don't know what happens if the DUP refuses it, with, whether the UK government would decide to go ahead with it anyway um, and what that would mean. Um, this anniversary, there's been suggestions that if... They go back in, uh, like there's a lot of incentives for them to do this. If they go back into power sharing, then possibly the US president, Joe Biden, will visit. You know, the US is, he's up, he's like big on his Irish roots and the US is very invested in the Good Friday Agreement and the peace and so on. Um, mm. Maybe he might c- come with gifts. There's been some talk potentially that there might be like a commitment by the US and the EU for more money for Northern Ireland to help them to like flourish economically under the protocol or under the Windsor framework, as we'll now call it. Um, and there's not, it's not nothing in that. Like there's, it, it is true that Northern Ireland would be in this rare position where it would have simultaneous access to this huge market of 450 million people for free um, that loads of countries want to be in, you know, yeah. and simultaneously access to Britain, which is just like very rare and applying only to this relatively small territory on the mm. north northeast of the island of Ireland. Um, so that's that's a real opportunity for foreign overseas investment and for headquarters of companies to set up there and for businesses to have advantages. Um, so it is potentially a, 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 a like a an opportunity for them. And also it's argue like you could argue that there's a unionist case for this because if Northern Ireland has that special arrangement that's like economically unique um there's an argument that they might not want to get rid of it like they might not want to leave the uk and join into united ireland because it would mean losing half of the access that they have so there, there is actually a unionist case to be made for this there's a big unionist case to be made for this and the kind mm-hmm. of small U unionism that has such a long tradition kind of le- departing from the DUP mm-hmm. and going to, you know, maybe a little uh, more reasonable kind of political outlooks uh, where unionism was about, you know, prosperity and political stability and True. the idea that, you know, keeps you in like this kind of um, like a stable economic environment. And those same people are still around. And I would imagine exactly like you say, they would not be thumbing their nose at this mm. incredibly privileged access that they have with mm. practically no paperwork now even, or, you know, no no friction whatsoever into into both the EU 
and the UK. I mean, that's, yeah, there was yeah. like, why would they abandon that? That's so easy. That's so interesting. However, I mean, there's that, mm-hmm. right? So one, you might say that the DUP see that, um, that's what they need to do. Like, that's the obvious thing to do. And yet at the same time, in order to make that happen, if the DUP were to swallow the little, little bit of compromise that they need to make now, and it's really very kind of bite-sized compromise, um, if they swallow that compromise, they also have to face facts that they're going to have to go back into Stormont with a mm-hmm. Sinn Féin First Minister. Um, and That's which it. one is more important, like the prosperity of the people of Northern Ireland or their pride um, as kind of top dog in Stormont? And it's really yeah. not clear um, from their actions in the last few years uh, which one it is, right? Because, of course, the devolved government hasn't been up and running since the last elections, which were last May, which for mm. the first time returned Sinn Féin is the largest party, therefore meaning there would be a Sinn Féin, a nationalist, first minister for the first time. So the DUP agreeing to go back into government means them going in with a deputy first minister instead of first minister for the very first time. And it's a pride thing for sure. Um, Mm. Also, like they lose forever their moment of like leverage this like big leverage that they kind of had since brexit where at a time they they held the balance of the majority in parliament and they were able to you know create waves that way and now everyone's like wanting to please the dup looking to them of whether they place what once they go back in and once they've accepted it they lose all of that um so you know it's sort of like it's a little bit the sunset on their on their great Brexit day in the sun, you know. So um, there's 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 reasons for them to be cautious. Also, like they have competitors. There's harder line unionists than the DUP, like the traditional unionist voice, for example, who will, if the DUP agree to something, they can point at them and they can say, you you know, you compromised, you sold us out. Whatever you say about this, you know, there's still some checks down the Irish Sea, and you've agreed to this. So like, yeah, they can be outcompeted like from the right on that um but we're just gonna have to see it really depends where i think each party thinks that their political interest lies with the conservative party we always have these hardliners causing problems they're a lot quieter this week um because i think the political maths has changed over in britain and we'll have to see what um the unionist space of the dup is they, like what way they're inclined in Northern Ireland. There's got to be a lot of business owners among them. And I know business owners just have want this certainty and for things to be settled so that they can plan and make investments and stuff. Like it's been a, it's been a hard time economically for many people. And I think that there'd be, there'd be plenty of people, you know, even Democratic Unionist Party voters who would be willing to, you know, take a win when it's offered and get on with things and, um, yeah, going towards like a hopefully brighter economic future. Okay, all right. Listen, you told me earlier on that you have a meeting and I've been keeping an eye on the time and you literally have one minute before you have to get to that meeting, Naomi. Correct. So, <laughs> I don't know if you've noticed yourself. So you have you have, have less than 60 seconds. I've been keeping an eye. Yes. <laughs> to tell us, it, closing thoughts on this. Closing thoughts. Um, it's amazing how easy it was to actually solve this once the political will was there. Um, a lot of what the EU proposed and the sort of EU supposed concessions, a lot of this was actually offered like a year and a half ago. And, um, you know, it's kind of been there for the taking. And the EU has said, well, you know, if you work with us and you provide us all this information and we do do this, we can can go a long way to to reducing checks and stuff like that. So, I mean, it's, it's amazing how much changed really just with really once Boris Johnson was gone. 
Wow. Okay. Well, that's, that is something to leave us on. All right, listen, thank you so much, Naomi, for filling us in on that. We're definitely going to be coming back to this, don't worry, because there will be more drama inevitably involved in this. Uh, but for now, we're going to leave it at that. And thank you all for listening. As usual, if you want some extra content, you can always find us over on Patreon, www.patreon.com forward slash The Irish Passport. And I'm sure that we'll come up with some material about this to maybe talk about uh, in some extra content soon uh, we, we, once we get our feet in the ground. Oh, I'm confident we're going to have updates about this. And I also have a really interesting interview which we're going to be posting soon, um, which is all about the Irish man who's at the heart of um, implementing the sanctions oh. regime internationally. Uh, so it's really interesting. It's about, um, it's, it's kind of like one key Irish figure in who's like, quite senior in the EU and how it all plays into the Ukraine-Russia story. Okay, fantastic. So head over there and check us out and you'll also be helping out by supporting the podcast as well. All right, slán, everyone. Slán.